The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes, they were communists. But the Vietnam War in Vietnam was much more about unifying Vietnam, and it was a war of national liberation. And we, we never understood that in Vietnam, and so we lost. The parallel that extends to Afghanistan is, you know, we go, and, and it's this Al-Qaeda Taliban sort of schism, is we go into Afghanistan, and Afghanistan for us is always, it's all about terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. And if we're doing nation building, we're doing it to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a terrorist safe haven again. But if you look from the view of the Taliban, you know, they're Afghan nationalists. For them, it is a war of national liberation. And we do start to understand it, but we start to understand it way too late. And by that point, sort of the, you know, the potential off ramps have passed. And, you know, we kind of wind up with, you know, going into this sort of 20 year war. So, yeah, there's, you know, there are lots of counterfactuals, but uh, in order to live the counterfactual, you also have sort of have to have a completely sort of counterintelligence that's infusing it. And our intelligence at the time, our sense of the war was wrong. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 24th, 2022. One year ago this month, the last American troops withdrew from Afghanistan, marking the end of a 20-year war. To reflect on those past two decades, I sat down with Elliot Ackerman, author of the new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. We discussed Elliot's personal involvement in the struggle to get Afghan allies out of Kabul a year ago, as well as his time in Afghanistan, first as a Marine and then as a CIA officer. Drawing on firsthand experience, Elliot spoke with me about what it means to win or lose a war and some of the reasons why this war was a debacle for Americans and a tragedy for Afghans. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 24th. Elliot Ackerman on America's End in Afghanistan. Elliot, I wanted to start with the structure of the book. Could you describe the way you thought about structuring the book and the way it flashes from last year in Rome to some chaotic um, on-the-ground accounts of the withdrawal to memories from the war and back again? Why did you choose to structure it this way? Well, I I think this, you know, the structure of the book kind of gets a little bit into the title. And uh, about a year ago, when Afghanistan was falling, when the Taliban were moving into Kabul, kind of in those dramatic days, a friend of mine who uh, has a successful Substack, she asked me if I would contribute, you know, 500 words on what was going on. 
And when I asked her, well, like, what exactly do you want me to write? She said, well, maybe, you know, you could just explain what's happened in Afghanistan for the last 20 years because people haven't been paying any much attention to this recently. And the whole thing just seems like a tragedy. And I mean, outside the, you know, the difficulty of trying to summarize 20 years of war and, you know, in 500 words, her use of the word tragedy struck me. And so I was trying to think about, you know, how do you structure something as large as a two decade war? Well, tragedies are, you know, from Shakespeare all the way back are, you know, they're typically told in five acts. So that's sort of where the, the book gets its, um, its overarching structure. And the five acts of the book correspond with the presidencies of Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, and then the fifth act that's kind of like, you know, the, the denouement of the book is, is the Taliban. And then that five-act structure also corresponded to what turned into my experience over the summer, which was I was involved with a number of evacuation efforts. And there were really five that I, I tell as a set piece. But those five took place over the last two weeks of last summer, which just happened to be a time when uh, my family and I were on a long planned vacation uh, to Italy, of all places. But I felt it was important to sort of toggle between, you know, my my present world and this very lovely vacation I had planned with my wife and my children to, to the war and to not only what was happening in Afghanistan in 2021, but what had happened there in, in years past. And so the book winds up sort of taking this structure where we are, you know, we're shifting around a lot in, in time and in somewhat fragmented ways. But for me, you know, that is sort of how I, have always experienced uh, the war. You know, it's something that that lives in the present, uh, but also lives, you know, lives in the past, and is constantly informing my present. Well, that was very unfair of your friend to set you up for failure like that to ask for only five hundred words. <laughs> right? I would never do that. I'm only going to ask you to explain the last twenty years in in a thirty minute podcast. It's much different. <laughs> but I wanted to just go back to what you said about Italy, of all places. Uh, can you explain what you meant by that? Maybe to get into some of the the symbolism of of exploring some of the ruins of another empire. And I think you know you portrayed really well the, the juxtaposition you were feeling between this beautiful vacation you were having with your family and then what was happening on on Signal. Can you talk a bit about some of that dissonance? Well, I think that's the right word is is dissonance. You know, I hope if if someone picks up the book, what they're going to feel is that dissonance and sort of how you know, we're toggling between time and space, you know, Afghanistan and Italy. But um, I happened to be, you know, in, in Rome for a chunk of it. And I'm walking through, you know, the, through the ruins, through, you know, the Colosseum or the Baths of Caracalla, you know, with my kids. And it's sort of difficult not to see the parallels as we're walking through the ruins of one empire. And I'm watching my own country, you know, the American empire engage in what I would characterize as sort of late empire behavior. You know, there is there is something decadent in in waging a, a sort of a twenty year war, and uh, something really jarring in the way this war finished. So the parallels were just like they're just very obvious to me. Yeah, and throughout the book, you have some really poignant observations on war in general, especially different archetypes for war. You mentioned certain generational differences, for example, between World War II 
as this archetype for wars ever since and how it kind of doesn't quite fit with with um, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Can you tell me a bit about what you think winning or losing a war looks like and what the gray area is in between? Well, you know, I mean, with to start with regards to sort of how these wars are different, you know, wars are typically, at least if you look in American history, they're generationally defining events, right? I mean, you know, my parents are of the Vietnam generation. That war defined their youth. You know, same with the Second World War and the Greatest Generation or uh, the First World War and the Lost Generation. Um, but I have never felt like I was, you know, that the wars were part of a generationally defining event. You know, I never felt like I was part of the Lost Generation. If anything, I felt as though I was the lost part of a generation and that the war was sort of a very bespoke experience among that few people had within my generation. So that kind of calls into question of, you know, how we wage wars in the United States and kind of the narrative that has emerged uh, in recent times is that, you know, the war finishes when all of the troops come home. You know, we constantly hear that. What's the exit strategy? How are we getting all the troops out at the end of this thing? And if you look at the history of American wars, the war doesn't necessarily end when all the troops come home. I mean, the Second World War, you know, we still have tens of thousands of troops stationed in Europe. And, you know, they are, they have been there since the end of the Second World War. If you look at the end of the Korean War, we have tens of thousands of troops on the Korean Peninsula after that war. In fact, you know, all of the troops only come home when we unequivocally lose the war. Like, for instance, at the end of Vietnam, all the U.S. troops came home. At the end of Afghanistan now, all of the U.S. troops have come home. And this is sort of a bitter irony, because if you look at places right now, like today, like Iraq, Syria, uh, you know, Somalia and the Horn of Africa, Niger, you know, we still have troops in those countries and they're still fighting. Those troops still draw what in the military we call imminent danger pay. So the question becomes, okay, well, are we still at war in Iraq? Are we still at war in Somalia or in Yemen? And if the answer is no, then, well, how can we still have troops there fighting and not be at war? You know, if the answer is yes, then why, for instance, you know, is President Biden in September of 2021 giving a speech at the UN that says for the first time in 20 years, America is not at war. I just, I bring this up, you know, not in any like a partisan way. I'm not trying to like score points with, with the Biden administration or against them, but just like our, our framing of war as Americans seems to have gotten sort of muddled over the years. And we don't have a clear conception of what it means to be at war, what it means to, and what it means to be at peace. And if that conception isn't clear going forward, it's going to make it very, very difficult for us to, you know, quote, win wars. So we don't even know what winning means. Exactly. And I definitely want to get into some of the broader um, U.S. foreign policy implications that you get into in the book. But first, I wanted to bring it down to a personal level. You know, you speak you speak broadly of war and wars between nations. But um, one thing I really enjoyed about the book was was bringing it down to the personal level of, of the many wars and many separate pieces that soldiers experienced throughout the war. Could you talk a bit about, you know, what you wanted to convey from either a veteran or an, or an active service member point of view, especially what, what you wanted to convey to civilians? I think one of the things that might not be obvious to anyone who hasn't experienced these wars is that because they've gone on for 20 years and increasingly they've been waged by sort of a, a, a subculture within the broader American culture, that to end the war, 
you know, unless you're going to show up and, and have and just keep fighting forever and have a career in the military, which, by the way, you know, many people do. Each person who walks away has sort of had to declare a separate piece, basically saying, you know, the war is over for me and I'm leaving it. I'm going to go start a new life. And oftentimes, you know, that can that can be very complicated. I write about it in my case. It, it put a number of friendships that I had sort of under stress. And that comes at a, you know, that, that comes at, at a certain cost. And so, uh, you know, we kind of negotiate individually these separate pieces, you know, these peace deals within our own souls. And, you know, some of them wind up being more enduring than others. And, you know, and, and it's not surprising to me that folks get sucked back into the war because the peace is not durable that they've made and the closure isn't as durable. And one of the things that was so complicated about how the way the war in Afghanistan ended, because there was this massive outcry for help and um, our government didn't have any type of system in place to evacuate our Afghan allies, was for so many veterans who had declared these separate pieces and sort of made peace with the fact that, hey, the war is over for me suddenly it wasn't over for them anymore and they were getting sucked right back in. And that was certainly my experience. And I, and I try to write about that in the book. That's definitely one of the things that struck me most about the book was just how fragile these, these personal separate pieces are for people, um, especially yourself. I think one of the more touching scenes in the book for me was you described a scene in the hotel room in which your, your partner um, attempted to, to shield you in a way. And, and you mentioned that it wasn't really from any physical injury, but rather a moral injury. You also mentioned throughout the book different discomfort that colleagues felt, not just people on the battlefield, but maybe colleagues in the CIA who felt they were violating certain executive orders around assassination. So can you just speak to a a bit about the the moral hazard that you've experienced or your colleagues have experienced uh, over the past 20 years at war? Well, I mean, listen, it's a very very big subject, right? But I think and it's one of the, you know, it's one of the reasons why war is a, you know, is a, is also a subject of, of fascination. And there is a, you know, there is an inherent contradiction built into all war, right? So like, why do societies go to war? Why have we always done this? Well, ostensibly societies, civilizations go to war in order to protect their civilization. They're under threat. They need to go to war to protect themselves from external threat, you know, or maybe it's conquest, but you know, that, that's why people go to war to protect or advance their civilization. You know, well, what is sort of, I would argue that the most foundational rule in any civilization that just sort of keeps us from being completely wild animals is the rule thou shalt not kill. But when we go to war, we engage in state sanctioned killing in order to preserve the state, the civilization. I mean, in many ways, you know, states are like kind of much larger corporations. They're much larger entities. The one thing the state really holds, as opposed to any other organized group, is a monopoly on violence. You know, the state is the only group that's allowed to use violence. So because there's that inherent contradiction, right, that in order to protect civilization, which is built on the idea of thou shalt not kill, we're going to engage in state-sanctioned killing, there's that inherent kind of contradiction in war. And that contra- those contradictions, I think, play out in people. And it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, war is something that uh, is difficult to for any person or society to, to reconcile within itself. And I think that's for these wars, it's been doubly difficult 
because the wars through our all volunteer military and the fact that there's never been a war tax and we funded the whole thing through our deficit have been outsourced to, again, this sort of this subsection of our society. And they haven't been something that's been endured by the society writ large. And that, I think, has caused a lot of dissonance between you know, the, the veterans community and society. It, it's caused, you know, probably the largest civil military divide the United States has had in generations. And sort of related to that, there's one scene in which you are speaking with a comrade who had experience both in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And there's sort of the idea that there's a good war and a bad war. I think this gets to to Walter's idea of just and unjust wars. In your view, is that is does that binary still exist? Well, my, my friend who you mentioned, you know, he and I served in a lot of the same units and and in some of the same battles of the Iraq and Afghan wars. And when we were watching the fall of Kabul, we were sort of wondering why we were feeling it so much more viscerally. And it was so much more upsetting to us to watch than say like a number of years before, back in 2014, when we were watching like the fall of Fallujah, when ISIS rolled into Fallujah, because he and I were both veterans of that battle too. What we settled on was why it was so difficult to watch Afghanistan in the way that it did was because, you know, the United States has only fought in its history two wars predicated on an attack against the homeland. You know, the first is the Second World War. The attack was Pearl Harbor, and that ended in a unequivocal victory for the United States uh, over the Axis powers. The second war that was fought predicated on attack against the United States was the War on Terror. September 11th tax, and specifically Afghanistan. And that was now ending with a unequivocal U.S. defeat in the most embarrassing fashion. You know, and being someone who's sort of, you know, raised on the stories of the Second World War, I think narratively, like, it makes it hard to realize, well, this is our generation's war, this this debacle. And so I think it, um, yeah, it, it causes one to, you know, to ask some pretty you know, some, some pretty disquieting questions. And there's a real, and there's sort of a deep irony in it too, because, you know, Af, as you mentioned, you know, Afghanistan, because it was, you know, the or- originally predicated on, you know, the attacks on 9-11 was the good war. Whereas Iraq, where he and I also fought, was always sort of, you know, the bad war. It was predicated on, you know, like a very, very shaky foundations, WMD, overthrowing a dictator, regime change, all of the, you know, all the stuff we know. But this irony that, listen, I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, we won the war in Iraq. I don't think you could t- say that. But I also wouldn't go so far as to say we lost the war in Iraq. Because if you look now, Iraq has gone through five different parliamentary elections. You know, it was a muddled mess. But we didn't completely lose that war. And so the idea that we would lose Afghanistan and then sort of have like a mixed outcome in Iraq, you know, also is sort of burns at the end of the day. So just, you know, there's 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 a lot to process here, particularly around the idea that even if, you know, you you fight a just war, that in no way assures that you're going to have a successful outcome. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I think one of these disquieting questions, as you mentioned, is, was this inevitable? You know, what went wrong, essentially, in Afghanistan? And and I realize I'm breaking one of my earlier promises not to (laughs) ask you to oversimplify 20 years of of war. But, you know, in in your view, were there any counterfactuals, forks in the road in which this could have gone another way? Sure. You know, and the emphasis there is could have. I'm not saying it would have if, you know, X, Y, or Z counterfactual had happened. But there, you know, there are moments where you look and say, okay, maybe, you know, maybe if we thought about things differently at this juncture, you could imagine a different outcome. I think a huge mistake that we made in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks after, if you recall, you know, President Bush announced, you know, you're either with us or you're against us, and the Taliban refused to hand over Osama bin Laden, was, you know, really within a period of months, I think broader American consciousness just conflated Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Like, they're all the same. We, we did not differentiate between them. If you look in sort of, you know, mid to late 2002 and maybe very early 2003, there was this opportunity when the Taliban were really on their heels, they'd been decimated and, you know, the remnants had fled to Pakistan. That was a moment when the Afghan government was being created, was being stood up. And, you know, we wound up basically de-Talibanizing the entire Afghan government. You know, if you had any ties with the Taliban, you were not welcome. But had we not, you know, had we sort of found a way to incorporate you know, members of the Taliban in a minority role into the Afghan government and, and and in effect, co-opt them, because what wound up happening was the Pakistani intelligence services co-opted them, allowed them to reconstitute inside Pakistan. And by 2005, 2006, you had a full-blown insurgency in Afghanistan. But if we had co-opted them earlier and shown them a pathway to being able to return to Afghanistan, if we'd done that and, you know, we had managed to kill Osama bin Laden in the early days, and we didn't invade Iraq, I think you can imagine a world where we stayed fixated on Afghanistan. We kept the scope of the mission much more limited, you know, and you could have seen a more positive outcome. It's, you know, it's a mistake we've made before, conflating what wars are about. This is why it's so important. We under, you know, the narratives around war are so important. So like, for instance, you know, if you look back at the Vietnam War, one of the great strategic mistakes that was made in the Vietnam War was the United States goes and fights in Vietnam based off of these ideas of domino theory, right? Which is, we can't allow Vietnam to go communist because if Vietnam goes communist, all of Southeast Asia will go communist and you'll see the spread of international communism around the world. We can't let that happen. Ergo, we must fight a war in Vietnam. And for many years in Vietnam, we were fighting, we Americans were fighting a war against international communism. But that is not what the Vietnam War was about for the Vietnamese people. Yes, they were communists, but the Vietnam War in Vietnam was much more about unifying Vietnam and it was a war of national liberation. And we we never understood that in Vietnam. And so we lost. The parallel that extends to Afghanistan is, you know, we go, and, and it's this Al-Qaeda Taliban sort of schism. 
is we go into Afghanistan and Afghanistan for us is always, it's all about terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. And if we're doing nation building, we're doing it to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a terrorist safe haven again. But if you look from the view of the Taliban, you know, they're Afghan nationalists. For them, it is a war of national liberation. And we do start to understand it, but we start to understand it way too late. And by that point, sort of the, you know, the potential off ramps have passed. And, you know, we kind of wind up with, you know, going into this sort of 20 year war. So, yeah, there's, you know, there are lots of counterfactuals, but uh, in order to live the counterfactual, you also have sort of have to have a completely sort of counterintelligence that's infusing it. And our intelligence at the time, our sense of the war was wrong. Sure. And as you know all too well, um, this month marks one year since the fall of Kabul. For the listeners who have yet to read the book, can you take me back to a year ago in Rome, uh, those dramatic days of receiving messages, trying to help, um, realizing some of the limits of, of what you're able to do and, and your state of mind at the moment? How did you get through? Well, you know, this war ended in a way I don't think we've ever seen a war end before because everyone is so connected. Anyone can reach out and basically touch almost anybody else through their cell phone. So as Kabul started collapsing, you know, my entire network lit up. Friends of mine who are veterans, their networks lit, lit up, as well as friends of mine who are, who are journalists, because I work as a journalist now. And I think it was really just sort of this crowdsourced effort to, to help. I mean, everyone knew, you know, the, the people who were still in Kabul, who were under threat of the Taliban, needed help. Um, so it was just sort of this relentless three-week sprint to try to get out as many people as possible. And then everyone sort of playing their position within this sort of crowdsourced effort. I think the role that I was able to help play was to just sort of bridge uh, the divide between you know, journalists and activists who had groups of people and you know, lists of people they were trying to get out with folks in the airport. It turned out just by coincidence that a number of the Marines who were in the airport um, and some of the CIA folks who were in the airport you know, were people I just knew from my past career. Uh, and so I was able to be in touch with them. Um, but this was a huge, again, a, a huge sort of mass effort of, you know, people raising money for private airplanes to fly into Kabul, people organizing convoys through the streets of Kabul, people coordinating with the Taliban to navigate through those checkpoints. Um, and then the groups I was with, I was trying to coordinate with uh, the U.S. military through through those checkpoints. And so it was sort of this, you know, a, you know, relentless 24-7 effort you know, to get on the personal side for me, it just happened to to coincide with, you know, being on holiday with my wife and our four children. So we're sort of, you know, surreally doing this while, you know, managing our childcare issues. And I don't think that experience in any ways was unique for the people I knew who were, who were also working on this. Now, fast forward one year to today. I'm curious how you spent the one year anniversary or how you commemorated it. Uh, of course, other than talking to people about your book. I, you know, I talk with friends. I don't think we sat there, you know, and, 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 and specifically, you know, necessarily marked the day. I think, um, you know, August 15th, the day that Kabul fell, I was in St. Louis talking about this book, but I talk with my friends and I think, um, you know, buddies of mine who are veterans, journalist friends who I, I've covered this war and other wars with. And I think all of us just, you know, just staying in touch is sort of our way of how we, um, you know, marked that day and, you know, and, and all the following days. 
And now my apologies for asking you to look into the crystal ball, but I'm curious what you think the future is of U.S. involvement or engagement with Afghanistan. For example, you mentioned one experience you had with an old asset named Chuckles, and you came to learn that, for example, the drawdown of forces actually has led to an increasing reliance on clandestine forces and and assets like Chuckles. Um, What do you see as the the future of of U.S.-Afghanistan? Well, I mean, you know, a few weeks ago, we saw Ayman Zawahiri was, you know, was killed in in Kabul, uh, in the head of Al Qaeda, and that is is obviously a tactical success for our intelligence community, but it certainly poses a number of strategic questions. First of all, you know, what is he doing in Kabul? And if the head of Al Qaeda is in Kabul, that is a pretty good indicator that the Taliban government cannot be relied upon to not harbor the type of terrorists that led to the September 11th attacks. So is the United States now vulnerable in a way it was vulnerable before prior to 9-11? That's, I think, a very legitimate question one people should ask. I think, you know, we tout our tactical successes like killing a single terrorist, but we have no ability to sort of to conduct the alchemy that turns tactical successes into strategic successes for our nation. So listen, after 20 years of war, like there's no doubt you know, the United States, our military intelligence communities have gotten very good at killing individual terrorists. We're, we're, we get an A plus at it. We're very good at it. Where I would say we get a much lower grade is translating that into strategic successes for our nation. So like, I mean, case in point, if we kind of look at the world today and really the last year, you know, we see in the fall of Kabul and the way the war in Afghanistan ends, I would argue, you know, a debacle that is is probably, if not NATO's darkest hour, certainly one of its darkest hours, and you know that happens in a in a in a global context. So you know, last summer, you know, Vladimir Putin, you know, was sitting there, you know, deciding whether or not he was going to invade uh, larger Ukraine, and I'm certain he saw the photos coming out of the airport in Kabul. And part of his calculus about whether or not to go into Ukraine was, you know, how robust is NATO's response going to be? And he's weighing that as one of the variables he's weighing as he's deciding what he's going to do in Ukraine. And so, you know, that ties Afghanistan, you know, into other world events. Now, sort of an incredible irony is that within six months of the fall of Kabul, NATO's darkest hour, I think you see one of the brightest points in the history of NATO, which is the way the alliance stands united against Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And, you know, we're watching the war in Ukraine tragically play out um, right now. But we're watching the war in Ukraine play out in a context of sort of rising authoritarianism around the world. And nowhere is that rising authoritarianism a greater threat to the, you know, liberal democracies of the world than in China. And the central issue in China is Taiwan and what will be the future of Taiwan. And we can only imagine, you know, what that question would look like had Russia just swept through Ukraine. Fortunately, that's not the case, but it's still it's a very tense question. And one of the reasons we're so worried about Taiwan is if the U.S. wanted to respond, we would have to respond from across the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it's very difficult for us logistically to do so. And, you know, wouldn't it have been nice if we still held on to all of those air bases in Afghanistan because those strategic air bases, they share a border with China. I only bring all of this up because... 
I think we have a tendency in our conversations in Afghanistan to just stovepipe it as though it's this, you know, very specific issue and we can just turn the page on Afghanistan. Yes, it's horrible. It's tragic. It was a debacle, but let's just forget about it and move on. The reality is you can't, not only because Afghanistan is tied strategically into so many other issues that exist in the world, but also no matter how much America wants to be done with Afghanistan, Afghanistan is not done with the United States. And the last point I would make just on the future of Afghanistan, this is something I think is really important, is we did get a lot of our Afghan allies out and they are in the United States right now. And their status is uncertain even a year out. They're here under humanitarian parole and that parole will expire. And if their status isn't adjusted um, and they aren't given green cards to work and put on a pathway to citizenship, you know, they could be deported. So right now in Congress, the, the Afghan Adjustment Act is working its way through both the House and the Senate. Um, you know, this is something that is crucial to get passed. And related to that, to that last point, I wanted to end, uh, if you'll permit me, on the dedication that you wrote at the beginning, which reads, for my friends alive and dead in these pages. Can you tell me a bit about what you meant by the dedication and how it relates to the book and your motivations for writing it in general? You know, because I got a lot of friends who fought in Afghanistan and many of them are are dead. And I, I don't know how to be more specific than that. You know, the it, I didn't want to didn't feel right to dedicate the book to just one person, you know, and I think that um, one of the things that really was obvious, evident to me in the way this war ended um, was there was a network of people who were involved in trying to have it end as well as it could possibly end and how small kind of those networks were that, you know, those of us who were touched by Afghanistan, fought in Afghanistan, covered the war as journalists or worked there as humanitarians or as activists. We all, we all knew each other. Um, we were all, we all knew each other or were like one or two steps away from each other, but there was this real sense that nobody kind of knew us. And, you know, when a country goes to war, we should we should all go to war or we shouldn't or we shouldn't go at all. Uh, and so I guess the dedication alludes to the fact that you know, that group of people are who the book is dedicated to. And that being part of that group also often comes at a cost, too often the highest cost. Elliot Ackerman, thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.